You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Today's guest is Laura Valencourt. Laura is a licensed behavioral health therapist, LMHC, and Laura had an opportunity that may be the ultimate goal for some practitioners. She was approached with an offer to sell her practice. But as you might suspect, given that we are talking with her today, it did not go exactly the way she thought it would, but she's here on the other side to fill us in. So she's going to talk with us today about what happened and what she learned from that experience. Just give a little more uh, background. So right now, Laura is the owner of uh, Elder Care Counseling and Guidance Services. And um, I hope I'm going to get this right. But so what I have is Elder Care. um, What you do is you work with a consultant coach and you provide counseling and care management to families that are in the midst of making difficult decisions related to um, loved ones' um, uh, care and health transition. Now, I also know that you are the uh, host of a podcast. That's actually how we met. Uh, So she hosts the Popular Life on Repeat podcast. Um, It's a podcast for dementia caregivers. Um, Her experience and passion have also been with working with individuals and family family members uh, who have been affected by Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia. Uh, Laura is a passionate speaker and educator about many age-related topics. Um, she's presented at numerous conferences, has been interviewed on a variety of podcasts and publications. Um, she has participated as clinician in NYU's uh, Family Caregiver Study, um, and she educates physicians in residency at Providence St. Peter's Hospital. She also was nominated by her community and peers for the 2019 Dennis Mayer. Is that right? Mahar. Mayer, Dennis Mahar. Mahar. Okay. Dennis Mahar Memorial Community Caregiver Award an award that exemplifies community service and outstanding leadership in the South Sound community. Um, so we are excited to welcome you, as Melissa said. Um, we, Melissa and I, of course, now, you know, and I meant, made reference to this, we met Laura um, when we were first developing this podcast that we are currently doing right now. So um, the other thing I will say is, and I feel like I say this on every show and I probably do, um, but if you are just listening for the first time, and first, let me just say that please do check out our other podcast episodes. We do have a number of other guests on who talk about a wide variety of issues um, and um, topics related to mental health and mental health practice. But if you're just tuning in for the first time, we are starting this year to have practitioners just like you listening on talking to, with us about their experience um, or about an obstacle um, or issue that came up and how they overcame it and what they can learn from it. Uh, because we believe that that kind of uh, story, that in, that information is something that you as a practitioner who's listening can take and possibly use in your own practice. Yeah. So, Laura, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm really excited to hear about this experience because I've only heard little snippets about it along the way from you. Um, but for those of you who are listening, Laura is that bright and warm personality who is so excited and eager, and I'm sure that you're going to get that today. So welcome, Laura. Thank you so much. It is so fun to be here with both of you. And I just want to say, if 
if I can help anybody that is listening, that that really is my goal, because as we'll talk about, I've had such ups and downs and <laughs> twists and turns. And so I was very ignorant going into this. And uh, again, I'm happy to share uh, my mistakes so folks can learn from that. So Laura, tell us a little bit about what did happen. You had been approached with what I'm sure sounded like a great opportunity. Tell us, tell us a little bit about what happened. Yeah, what went down? <laughs> so I had owned a small group practice. Gosh, it was probably about six for about six years at that point in time, doing really well. I was I was very fortunate. I uh, when I started my group practice, I kind of hit the ground running, and I just grew, 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 grew. Um, I think at my um, peak again, small group practice. So I think we had about six employees and just doing really well, living the dream. Uh, I, again, looking back, realized how much I didn't know, but uh, I kind of hit a plateau in a way. And I think a lot of group um, practice owners would relate to this. You, you, you just work so hard, you just build, build, build. And then, and then what, right. You're, you're kind of like, okay, what's next. And so right around that time, um, I lost a really key employee. Um, this employee was um, working and managing with um, some big contracts I had with the state. And at the same time, and let me tell you, when it rains, it pours. It's mm-hmm. about the same time, my office that I had been in for years, um, I was notified they were selling. And so I was needing to find a new place to move. So between those two things, I was kind of blindsided and um, starting to go into crisis mode. You know, how, how am I going to replace this employee? How am I going to um, preserve this important contracts that I had? Where are we going to move to? So what happened totally out of the blue was I got a phone call from um, this company, this uh, corporate company that had found me. Um, I believe they found me through my website. They worked in the same industry or they were actually building a a company um, in the industry of aging. And they had recently purchased a business in the town next to mine. And so they were looking to expand. And so to me and my um, desperation of the moment, so timing is everything, right? I thought, great, the universe is dropping this amazing opportunity in my lap. (laughs) So they wanted to talk uh, and meet with me about, originally it was to sell my company, but after we started talking some more, what they really wanted is they wanted me to stay on and manage, um, but they wanted to take over um, the ownership and and the, the name of the company. And so, you know, there's a lot of hindsight stuff that we'll get into, but um, long story short, they were, they were really good at whining and dining and, you know, these are these are these, these guys with um, lots of money. They had built this amazing healthcare company in the past and sold it for tons of money. They're very successful. And I was um, starry-eyed, to, to be honest. <laughs> well, I and thought, it all sounds so good as you're talking about it, right? Perfect, yeah. There's I like get, 10 different red flags that just went off, by the way. Like, <laughs> no, no, head. no. I'm like, oh, okay. So check, check, check. Okay, got it, got it. <laughs> Where were you, Dan, when I needed you? <laughs> I'm with Melissa. I am like, oh my gosh, you know, they they share the vision, you know, they see my value. Who, history of little, success. History of success. Little old me, why would they want to buy me? So 
And again, you, you want to hear what you want to hear. I was, if, if I had been in a different situation, I might have um, done things. I, I know I would have done things differently, but I was in the middle of trying to find a new place to relocate my office. I was desperate. I was getting really, for the first time ever in six years, I was worried about making payroll. I was concerned about my future. There was a lot of stuff that was coming up at that time. So that just kind of sets the stage a little bit. So what happened then was um, through, uh, and I'm going to fast forward through a little of this because I know Daniel and Melissa, you both pop in with some clarifying questions, but uh, I, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, it became clear they didn't want to buy me. They wanted to, and merge is not the right legal term either. I later found out. <laughs> But they basically wanted me to work for them. Um, they wanted to take my business, all of my uh, um, clients, all of my contracts, all of my employees, my reach, my phone number, you know, everything I had, including my name, and put it under their umbrella, essentially, uh, which is great for them. <laughs> and, no! <laughs> and I thought it would be great for me. Um, and so um, I did go see an attorney. But it was, it was, I literally got the name. I don't even know how I found this person's name. He was a contracts attorney. I think I met with him for like an hour. It was, it was just super quick. Like, I want to do this. Let's do this. He looked it over the contract real quick. The only piece of the contract, of course, the other company wrote the contract. So the only piece of the contract that we changed was the no compete clause. I knew enough to know that if this didn't work, I need to be able to still do this work somehow. And so we changed the no compete clause and then I was off and running. Long story short, I, um, hey, I, I went under the umbrella of this company. Hindsight, and this would be some advice that I would give to anybody listening, um, a, a really good thing happened and that is they didn't buy me. So they didn't buy my name, uh, my company name, even though they still had um, my phone number and, you know, all of my contracts and clients. Uh, when we separated, I still had my business name and um, business entity that I could go right back to. So that's, that's kind of a little side note. So I was with this um, company for about um, all in all, it was one year. Uh, so really by the time we were done negotiating and stuff, I had actually quote worked for them for uh, about eight months. Now, I just want to give a little bit of background, um, before we go jump into a lot of the other stuff, but as therapists out there, I know you'll get this as a small business owners, we pour our heart and soul into our work and building the, having the right image and having integrity, like I know you can relate when I say that every word that went on my website, every, every um, talk that I gave, every piece of um, communication or marketing material was so thought over, so um, diligently, so um, with so much integrity and heart to reflect my values. I mean, it's really, our businesses are extensions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think, you know, we can talk about this thing that happened, but I just really want to highlight how big this was internally for me. This was part of my identity. This was part of my life's work. This was my connection to my community. 
people trusted me and trusted the work that I did. And so when I uh, merged with this, when I, I joined this other um, company, one of the first things I, I noticed was um, our values did not align. You know, and again, I didn't take time to even think about what attracted them to me. What did they like about me? And um, also, how what was really was their vision besides making money? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but very quickly, almost immediately, I realized, oh crap! You know, our we are. How can I go out in the community and talk about um, using our services, knowing? that there's this whole other um, vision behind it or these different values. So I had a real physical, visceral um, reaction to that. And I was, my health was declining rapidly. It, my body was speaking to me because I wasn't listening to um, the other parts of myself. And so um, I had a ton of anxiety. I was having these little panic attacks. I was working myself to the bone. I was trying to prove to them. I I really just gave away my power in a way that this is another key piece. I think that um, when you meet, for me anyways, I met these these very successful businessmen who, um, quote, knew what they were doing. And so I just trusted that implicitly. And and I um, later, hindsight, realized they they didn't know about the work that I was doing. And and they knew how to make money, but that's a re- that's a very different value uh, system. And so, um, yeah, so so I went through a lot emotionally uh, through that process as well. Were they what you call venture capitalists? Is that what they were? I of sorts, so, essentially. Dan. <laughs> I just wondering. I think. Um, and I, I'm not I judging. Be this is not. I'm not. Like, yeah. I don't want to say. Like, I'm not. I'm eight. Nine judgment. I was just asking out of curiosity. Yeah. Totally. And and I want to be careful too because I I you know it's not my intention to um, speak ill of these folks, even though I certainly had my own ex, you know emotional experience in response to our um, time together. But yeah, I, what they what they were really good at, which is why they were successful, is they would pull together a healthcare company. They would get a bunch of investors involved. They would sell um, these quote services to big corporations um, and then um, sell and then move on. I mean, that's a quick down and dirty um, that I later learned and realized. So I don't know if that's a venture capitalist. <laughs> I don't know if that's what you call it or not. But <laughs> Now, Laura, I have so many questions for you because I think you're going to be able to help all of us just... Um, learn so much about experiences like this. Um, But just one to start us off is, you know, you mentioned that you realized that your mission, vision, and values were not in alignment with this new companies. And I'm wondering what were some of those early things that started to happen that made you aware that we're not in alignment? Uh, Such a good question. I think I felt this is, uh, I'll try to articulate this, but um, I never, you know, in those first six years of owning my business, never felt um, salesy. I never felt corporate-y. I never, um, in all of the sort of marketing and um, um, relationship building in the community with, with both clients and, and referral sources, uh, I, I'm just, I've always felt just very personal. You know, I'm just who I am. And we talk, the, the goal, it, the goal is always to help the people in need and how can we best do that? 
whether it's it's our one-on-one service or I'm developing a program because I see a need in the community. So it's there's just this focus and goal on helping. Now, I, I understand as a business owner, you have to make money too. And so I get really creative about how to do that. I have partnerships with some nonprofits that will that have a pot of money that will pay when people can't pay, or I've got, you know, some of those state contracts where um, they'll, they have programs that they will pay for counseling. So I'm, I'm able to get creative in how to serve the community. And so um, what was happening very quickly is we were, we were kind of being shuffled into this model. And again, not that it's a bad model. It's just a much bigger kind of corporate type model of running your CRM and, um, you have to hit so many, some of the things that came up for me that really hit hard was the way they were structuring paying my employees in um, that they had um, to hit so many hours to get a certain amount of pay, which again, we do that too on a smaller scale. But what was happening is my employees were being put in a position of feeling like they had to upsell their services as therapists, you know, or as, um, as care managers. So sometimes folks would come to us with a question. So we normally would just bill for a consultation and help get them going in the right direction. No, no pressure to sign on to our services. But my employees had these quotas they had to meet to bring on these services. So suddenly we were being put in this ethical dilemma of, oh, they only need this question answered and then they can go on their way. But you know, maybe they don't realize they need this or that, or maybe we won't share this piece of information with them. So they'll come back to us again. You know, it was these really weird ethical dilemmas that I hadn't been presented with before that were just big red flags for me. Sure. And you're emphasizing something that has come up a lot. There's a trend within the healthcare and now starting even in mental health care to corporate ties, I guess you could say some of this stuff. And that's part of the issue. One of the concerns that has been raised with this process is that, you know, when you have a practice like yours, you know, where it does get, let's say, acquired by a larger entity, and now it's really, you know, and they're approaching it, the owners are, the, the, you know, the corporate side of it's approaching it from, this is a numbers thing. How do we, you know, it's a financial piece here. The problem with that is that mental health is not a financial matter. It is a healthcare matter. And there are healthcare considerations. And when you get licensed, your board is not asking you questions about, and they don't want to know that you're a good business person, although that's important. They want, they're trying to make sure that you're an ethical business person, right? And that you're following certain ethical procedures. And so there are absolutely in the best run practices, right? The they there's a there's a there's a symbiosis of those two things, right? Certainly you find a way to be both run a profitable business while being ethical, but not. You know, if you're lacking the ethical piece, that's the quickest way, in my opinion, to find yourself out of business and without a license. And so, you know, that it's such an integral part of that process. And unfortunately, that's something that if you look at, you know, I'm not saying that corporate America is, you know, unethical or corrupt, but there is the piece that sometimes it's easy to favor. This is a numbers game. It's about making money. And what's the financial say? When reality is, this isn't a car wash. This isn't a, you know, a bookstore. This isn't a your normal business. This is a healthcare practice. And there's a healthcare component to it where the ethics you have to follow, where if a client needs a certain amount of services or needs something and they're paying you for it, your job is to provide those services. Absolutely. Thanks for really highlighting that too, because I, again, in the moment, that isn't something that I was seeing, although I knew 
Um, this company did not have counseling services uh, involved. They um, originally, their model was the care management, the consulting, the, co- you know, they had home care, they had, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. Um, and they were super excited to um, have my team come on board and introduce the idea of counseling. So this was, this was also new to them. And uh, yeah, so boy, th- th- there, there are a few things that I could share about that ethical piece of how we talked about you know, our services, how we were presenting it. And then, and then in the, in the room, right. Um, How ethical, how, how do you be ethical as a clinician, as a therapist, when you're meeting with a family or or an individual for counseling, you recognize Mm -hmm. that they would benefit from some services that you offer like care management. You know, what is that? How do you navigate that in a way that, I mentioned there was a couple of red flags that popped up for me and I'm laughing because there's always, always, I mean, that's the thing. Hindsight is 2020, right? That's what they always say, because, you know, it's easy to kick yourself for things you should have done. And this is true for anybody in any walk of life, but we all make mistakes. We're all human. You know, I don't think the fact that you, you know, did or didn't do something, you know, necessarily is right. If it led you to where you want to be now, then that's the proper path. Then you were on the right path, in my opinion. It's kind of a philosophical thing. But the point is, when you were talking, I did notice there were a couple of things I was like, uh-huh, okay, uh-huh, uh-huh, right? And one of the biggest ones, I think, and this is true for all mental health practitioners, any, anyone who's in the healthcare, anyone who owns a business, is that, you know, if you're merging or you're being acquired by another entity or a company, one of the most important things is, as you said, for mental health practitioners very often, you know, it's true for everyone too, but mental health health practitioners often, you are putting your heart and soul into this. This is your essence of who you are and what you believe in. Most practices that I work with, I find that's the case. The owner has a very, very passionate about what they do, what led them to start a practice or want to start a practice. So one of the biggest things that when you're looking at someone and someone says, hey, I'm going to buy, I want to offer you a certain amount of money. I want to buy you. I think is you have to look at what is the corporate culture? What is the, you know, does that vision, does that mission of them mesh with yours. And sometimes it's hard to tell. I mean, sometimes you don't know. Like I said, sometimes you, it is hindsight. It's just 2020. It's just how it is. But I think there is a, a research period that you need to do. Just not you, but a person needs to do as part of your due diligence. Is this a company we want to be in business? Is this a company we want to work with? You know, do they embody what we want? And I think it's something, you know, we've covered this topic a lot on this podcast that you went to school to be a practitioner. You know, you didn't necessarily go to school to learn the basics of business. It's useful. Certainly, of course, anyone I think can benefit from an MBA, from having business training. But I don't think that most practitioners, when they come out of school, they're not coming out of school with those that knowledge. And this is one of those things I think that you have to learn, right? Absolutely. That it's a business mindset that you look at all the underlying information before you make a decision. I also think you were, from what you were telling us, it sounds to me like you were in a bit of a a situation. And I don't know if most people would have made a different decision because an offer was put on your plate. It was very attractive. You were in a situation that wasn't the the best possible and you were looking for a resolution. So you you made the jump. But that was the other red flag. I was like, okay, you know, I always tell practitioners who are considering a practice when they're like, oh, I don't know, right? I don't, you know, should I do it? And I'm like, if you're going to do it, do it, <laughs> right? If you're going to do it, do it. Like, here's a couple of first steps you should do and do it. I mean, you're basically taking a bet on yourself, right? 
So there are times where that jump, like, okay, it's risky, but I'm going to do it. Makes sense. There are other times where if you're in a position, I think if you're in a, especially in business, if you're in a position where you're not at your strongest point, you know, if you're playing from a weakened hand or a weaker hand, that can always sometimes end up burning you because you have to stop and ask yourself, am I doing this for the right reasons? Am I doing this because this is the right decision and the best option? Or are we doing this because I personally think I don't have any other options? And I think that especially if you have a savvy party on the other side of the table, they can take advantage of that. Now, I'm not saying that this company did, but I'm telling you as a lawyer who works with the lawyers that there are lawyers I know who are in business who absolutely would not hesitate to take advantage of that if they knew the other party was in that kind of position. So, you know, again, like these are things that I got just popped up. And I'm not saying these are things you should have done. Oh, you didn't do this right. Right. And I'm not saying that to anyone listening. Oh, well, you know, you screwed up here. It's more like, hey, like this is part of the process of learning. This is just things that, again, easy to talk about after the fact. (laughs) And it's an interesting point. I put this wasn't on my radar at all when I was thinking about what we would be talking today. But I think that's an interesting point. If, If someone is looking to sell their practice or sell a business, what frame of mind am I in right now? Right. Am I deciding to sell from a place of, you know, I got a lot going on or am I selling from a place of like, I don't know, like where I feel sturdy in what I'm doing. Right. I'm thinking years ago when I was like years and years and years ago, and I was getting like my, my ACA magazines in the mail, I read an article in there that talked about if you're going to sell, sell when you have like 30% gas still in your tank. Right. And so that wasn't on my radar for today, but it is an interesting thought about where am I at? Even if nobody else knows where I'm at as the group practice owner, how does that influence how I approach these conversations? I couldn't agree more with both of you. And so here's the other thing that I realized too is um, first of all, there are people that sell and they sell, they're done, they sever the tie, they walk away, they're not involved. And then there are these other pieces where they keep you on as a manager or, you know, they have this uh, role for you to continue to play. Um, I think, yeah, things would have been very different if I was moving on. You know, I'm not retirement age. I wasn't ready to walk away, um, which is why that no compete piece was really important to change for me because I knew that. So the other thing that I wanted to point out that you're bringing up is for those of us, whether, you know, you brought up the good point that we're not taught to be business owners in school. We learn that as we go. But there is this cool magic thread in us about being an entrepreneur, right? Like there's something empowering about that. Even if we stumble our way through it, when we become successful or not, or we just break even, whatever it is, there's, that's that piece of, um, that's the spark that I felt I had. And I didn't realize, and again, this is all hindsight that, um, how important it was for me to be my own boss. You know, I hadn't really contemplated what it would be like to work for someone else or to have to follow their rules or um, follow their goals or their vision. That blindsided me. It's interesting to say that. I remember when I started my own practice, um, about six months ago, I was talking to a lawyer, um, colleague of mine. This person was good 20 years my senior, my, my senior. And he said, oh, you started your own practice. I said, yeah. And he said, great. He's like, so you bit the poison apple. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, oh, it was like, it's sweet. You like doing it, right? And he's like, yeah, he's like, good. Because you're never going back to like a firm. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, because 
He's like, I, he's like, I talked to him in a year. He's like, because in about a year, it's going to be too late. He's like, you're going to get used to being your own boss. And he's like, you'll never be able to work for anyone else again. And that's okay. But you have to be aware that, that that's what's going to happen. And he's totally right. At this point, I, could not, I couldn't do it. And I, I, I think you're 100% right, right? The people who go into private practice, there may be any number of reasons. And some you may be conscious of and some you may not be conscious of. I do think that some of the practitioners I even have interacted with, you know, even if they're not verbalizing it, or even if they're not conscious of it, there is absolutely an aspect of that of, I want to be my own boss. I want to do this. This is something that I want to accomplish. And I think it's a worthwhile goal. Like I think Melissa and I would both agree that anytime a practitioner wants to start a practice, great. You know, there's not enough mental health services as there is in this country. Cool. You know, but it's about how you do it, you know, as you said. But I, absolutely, I think there is something very cool about saying, I own my own practice. Right? I'm a, I own a group practice. I, you know, there's, there's a cachet to that still. You know, I think, and, and maybe part of that has to do with the fact that America's built on the idea of capitalism, the idea that you can go from nothing to, to you know, to being very wealthy and being very successful if you work hard. You know, there's no so freedom in that, you know, correct. Um, I think that's what I never thought of it that way, because for some people, it might not feel like freedom to be tied down to have all this responsibility. But for me, there's so much freedom in being able to pivot or make decisions about what I want to build or where I want to expand or um, how I want to, you know, what I want the image to be. I mean, there's, I learned again, so much about myself, Dan, you had said, you know, you were saying you're being so nice and I appreciate it uh, to not be judgmental about any decision <laughs> you might make. <laughs> and I I've learned not back. to judge. I don't judge at this point. <laughs> I really don't. The reality is I look back on this and go, the heck was I thinking? Like, oh my gosh, I didn't take all the things I could have done. And like you, you were referring to or alluding to, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, as hard as it was, and I know that sounds cliche. We, we think about that all the time. Oh, those hard lessons, but my confidence in myself as a business owner went so, I mean, it crashed and burned, you know, at first, but by the, my experience, those eight months, what I learned from them was I actually know my stuff. Like I gave that power yeah, yeah. away initially, but then I realized that I could see the mistakes they were making. I could see where our numbers were going down because of some decisions that were made. So when I left, and let me tell you folks, again, I walked away from everything. I didn't have a salary. I had zero money coming in when, when I left. So it was a complete leap of faith. But I, I also was at the point that I knew I'd probably end up in the hospital over stress, you know, related issues if I didn't. So the decision was easy at that point. But um, I hit the ground running. And um, I just think my confidence in, in myself and my abilities to run a business and the, the confidence also in knowing my population, knowing the work that I'm doing, knowing my community and what the needs in the community are really, uh, again, it, it's helped me be where I am today. And so, yeah, today, four years later, I've got my team back. I, so here's what happened when I left. So I had the no compete clause, meaning that uh, I, I got that taken out, meaning that I could go out and start my own business. I could compete with them. That was no problem. However, what I didn't change 
was a no solicitation clause. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't know anything about that. Uh-huh. So what I learned was I could not solicit obviously their clients, which were my clients. Now was there a li- year limitation on that? Do they have a limitation? One year. One yep. year. Okay. Yeah. It also meant that I didn't realize I couldn't solicit their employees, which were my employees. So I couldn't get my team back. You know, everybody was kind of locked in. Oh, that was the hardest thing ever. So while I left, I couldn't get my contracts back. I couldn't get my clients back and I couldn't get my team back. Now, clients have a choice to go. You know, I I wasn't soliciting them, but they could find me and um, that wasn't going to be a problem. But I had for a whole year, I didn't have my office manager. I didn't have my, um, my counselors, my care managers. Oh my gosh. It was, I worked my tail off doing everything, billing everything. And then finally, a year later, I got everyone back. So that's the happy story. This is why you hire an attorney, everyone who's listening. <laughs> well, and you did have an attorney, you did. Mara. No, you did but, have an attorney. But you did. But you did say something that I picked up on. And that is you met with this one, this person for one time. Mm. Right. Yeah. And I will tell you from personal experience that I've had a number of times where I've worked with someone one time. They come in for one thing. They ask some questions. They get some input. And they leave. And I'm like, OK, good luck. But like to me, in my mind, I'm thinking that's a horrible mistake. Not because I'm looking for their business, you know, you're like, great. I'd be happy to have their business. But I will tell you, my own personal knowledge as an attorney, this is unbiased, right? Is that the reality is, and, you know, again, we've covered this ad nauseum on this podcast. The reality is if you're running a practice and you own a practice, your legal issues and your legal needs are going to not, are going to be much more than just one time or one meeting. And it is very hard. And I can tell you this from personal experience. And this is why actually I don't do it. I do not review documents at all under any circumstance in it when I'm doing initial consultation with a client because it's impossible, in my opinion, to adequately do a good job when you're sitting there for an hour talking to someone you've just met to adequately do a good job to figure out what the document they have is and what's wrong with it and what needs to be fixed, right? And that's why I tell clients who want to come in and I've had clients ask that question in this exact scenario. And I'm like, no, if you need to hire, if you want this done, you got to hire me at least on a limited basis. So I have time to go work through this document, see what's there, figure out what needs to be changed, what I don't like, what, you know, that type of thing. And I'm not saying this is not in any way criticism of this attorney. I wasn't part of the situation. I don't know anything about it. I'm not judging this attorney. But I am saying that I do think that that's where a more prolonged relationship and working on this document more than just that one session probably could have helped. Yeah, absolutely. But again, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's not no judgment here, but that's, I think, a lesson. I did not have a relationship with an attorney. I mean, again, I do now. So, you know, all the things that I learned through this experience, I did walk in again. I I needed somebody to save me at that point Mm -hmm. in time. And this business was going to swoop in and do that. And so whether I would have listened or not, I don't know. Um, you know, to an attorney that may have given me more advice, he probably, he or she would have maybe said stuff that I didn't want to hear, but it's important to get all the information so that, I mean, I tell my clients that all the time, you, you can't begin to make a decision if you don't have all the information. So absolutely. Yep. I had gone in, here's the contract. This is what I want changed. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'll pay my hour. (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, and there are a few things that are jumping out at me, Laura. Um, you know, one kind of what I'm hearing is, you know, I was in a place where there are a lot of hard things happening initially and I was maybe overwhelmed, but these people swooped in and they were so confident and they looked so together and they had all this training in business and finance. And I think sometimes because that's not our training, it's like, oh, but I'm inadequate, like compared to what they know and their experience. And when the reality is they didn't know what you know, that's why right. they were acquiring. Well, and that's the interesting spin on the story is that while I imagine it can feel like, oh, but I don't have that training. They have this experience and knowledge that I don't have. As a result of this experience, you realized I know what I know. I know a lot of things actually. And the other thing that's kind of jumping out at me, you know, as we're talking about this today is kind of the role of heart in, in being a business owner. And we're not the only industry uh, I think any industry you can lead with heart in whatever business you're running, but that's kind of one of the things that I'm hearing, right? As clinicians, we might not have a ton of training in business or finance, but we we're helpers and we lead with care. And that's oftentimes one of our motives for our work. And when you saw these people who were very much based on numbers, that heart piece was missing, which I think people feel clients and even clinicians can feel. You know, even I'm thinking about some of these packages or changes that they were making. I think there's a way to offer packages and new services 100%. with heart yeah. where people feel cared for. Uh, oh, this is a service that people would find valuable. We can help them. But there was that heart piece that it wasn't like heart centered. It wasn't coming from a mm -hmm. place of care. Um, and so really, I think, you know, our conversation today is emphasizing like you said, when you started is the amount of care that we put into our work, the care for our clients, even the care for our staff, right? Even if staff don't know how much uh, care we put into having them on our team. Absolutely. And, you know, as I rebuilt, you know, I had that hard year on my own, just working overtime, big time. And then I got my employees back the, the following year and I've had the best year that I've ever had last year, um, which is amazing. But a lot of it was based on what I took and learned from that experience. And I love what you're saying, Melissa, because that's exactly what I did is I recognize that there is a way to be successful, to be smart with your business, to consult with attorneys, you know, to do it, to take pieces of that, um, but led with heart. It just you said it so well. Now, I have a question. At any point, as you were doing this negotiating with them, as you were kind of did, did was there any part of you that was like something feels off or about this? Okay. Yeah. And here's why I asked the question because you both have made a point now repeatedly that I think is a really good point, and that is that, and I see this come up with practitioners that you know I had a practitioner who I interact with on a regular basis and. Uh, the other day I was talking to them and they said, you know, every time you call me, I'm so intimidated by you. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like I have imposter syndrome. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think I know what I'm talking about half the time. What do you, what do you know? Right. But they're like, no, no, you know, like, you seem to know so much, blah, blah, blah. Right. But I see that a lot that when it comes to like business or it comes to people who are successful in business or entrepreneurs, I do see practitioners kind of be like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I could never compete. And I asked this question of you just now because it emphasizes something that I think most practitioners aren't aware that they have a superpower that most people don't have. And that is that most practitioners I know are very, very, very good at reading people and reading emotions and studying people and intuitively are in tuned 
because this is part of your training. And I think also because it's the type of personality who's drawn to this type of work, you're intuitively able to decipher if someone's BSing you. If you're someone's in obsession with someone, you can tell, right? You're able to read them a certain way. Part of your job is to diagnose and things like that. It's a superpower. There are a lot of other people in the population who do not have that ability, believe it or not. And I think that a lot of practitioners don't value the skills they actually do bring to the table, right? So while someone like me may be an attorney and have my own set of training, or someone may be very successful in business from an entrepreneurial standpoint, right? They have a very set of knowledge, specific set of knowledge, much as, as practitioners do. And practitioners too often are quick to not account for that or minimize that when I think it's actually much the other way around. You actually have a superpower that that makes you as good as you guys are. And so I think sometimes practitioners forget that. that just because you don't have a training in one area doesn't mean you're not accomplished, right? Or shouldn't believe in yourself. You actually are probably a lot more accomplished and you know worthy than you actually are giving yourself credit for. Dan, I'm giving you a big hug. Or the- <laughs> I love you for saying that because that is exactly... I mean, you're speaking right to me when you were saying that. And I know you are t- so many others. Yeah, well, it's true. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so many others because we don't, um, I, I can speak for myself. I didn't value that within myself. You know, we're, we're not taught to value that part. And so I didn't trust. Uh, yeah, those senses were going off. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just kept thinking, oh, but this is how you're supposed to do it. This right. is how a, a successful business would do it. And I just need to not listen to myself because clearly I wasn't doing it right. So these people know what they're doing. And um, yeah. And and so that's a personal, you know, um, hit to myself, yeah. not trusting myself. And so really from this experience, I have walked away with a whole new appreciation, like I said, of my skills, my expertise, my, my, my trust, or at least if I'm going to make a mistake, quote mistake, or take a risk, at least I can go in with eyes open and be really conscious about that and not just shove it aside and pretend like, you know, those red flags aren't there. Yeah. In, there are so many questions I still don't ask you, Laura. (laughs) But I guess I'm wondering, you know, now that you have your team, um, what has that been like? I mean, you initially, I'm sure, had to have a conversation with them about the transition that was going to happen, right? Um, And now they're back. And I'm wondering, what was that like to have these two transitions with your team? We grew so much together, as you can imagine. Uh, really Really, there were two key employees that were with me before, during, and are with me now. Um, I have others that have come on since, but you know, there's a bonding experience that can come with that. So absolutely. Wow, by fire does make people grow closer together. <laughs> yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> so they knew I, I am a very transparent person. Um, I, my team often know, they know what's going on. I'm, I'm very open with them. And so when, uh, before this happened, we talked about it, um, they were excited. I mean, we were all excited. And I mean, geez, we were going to get a brand new office. We were getting all the new equipment. We were getting all the support we needed for anything we'd ever wished for, really. And so who wouldn't be excited about that? Um, set salaries, you know, we didn't have to um, worry month to month about the hours. They were guaranteeing pay whether we saw clients or not. I mean, there was a lot of perks that, that came with that. Um, and then 
I, I believe that they also, I mean, they were coming to me with uh, the concerns as well. So it was a real struggle um, during that time, obviously. But now, again, we have been um, able to just be way more aware of, I would say, the ethical dilemmas that come with operating a practice. Again, my practice is a little different because we offer a variety of services, counseling, consulting, care management, and coaching. and so. Mm-hmm. And then we have our state, con- we have a variety of things that we're doing, um, but we're constantly talking about the ethical pieces and, and, and our values. One of the first things I did with my team is we did a values um, exercise and everybody, uh, you know, we went through this thing where we um, chose our top values and we brought it together and um, discussed that and that created the values of our company. And so I've just been more aware of how to um, hold that place uh, in in our minds as we make decisions moving forward. And for anybody else who might be thinking about selling their practice, maybe it's on their thought is this is what I'm going to do when I'm, you know, when I retire, this will be my plan. What would you recommend to somebody else now having been through this process? Absolutely. Again, separating do you envision having any involvement at all? That 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 just clearly you're going to go down a whole different path um, mm-hmm. if you are retiring or walking away. And if that's the case, again, in the future, if I decide one day to sell because I was retiring, I would be thinking about what do I want my legacy to look like? You know, are they going to change the the name and the image? I think are really important to me because of the years that I um, put into building. This and so that's something I would think about. Again, we talked a lot about values. Um, what is their vision? Why are they attracted to you in the first place? All of those things. And then if you're considering joining, like like I did, yeah, there's a lot. Of, I mean, get an attorney. <laughs> uh, I love what you said about the thirty percent in the gas tank. Like, pay attention to what, see your therapist. I mean, well, gee, I should have seen. I should have gone to my therapist, really. I wasn't seeing one at that time. I should have been. I needed one um, to really explore the deeper hidden motives or fears that might be driving that decision. Mm. Um, that would have been so helpful for me. So, yeah, lots of. Lots yeah, of I mean, I think it's to your point, I think it's really important. You know, there is a huge difference. Look, if you're going to sell out and cash out, great. Go, go start your beach bar, like in your retirement. Great. Cause that's what I want to do. I'm all about the cocktail <laughs> lifestyle. Grew up with the movie cocktail. That's my dream. My wife makes fun of me for that, but anyway, right. Right. Great. So if you want to sell out and that's great. There's nothing harder that you want to retire. Great. But if you're going to stay with the organization, I think you raised a great point. And that is that if you're staying, but then you better figure out what is that role you're going to be playing at the organization. And are you cool with it? And if you're not cool with it, then what's the, what do you foresee as your role there? What do you foresee as the, all the different aspects that would be asked or expected of an employee? Because you're essentially becoming an employee, even if you're a man, you know, member of management or an executive, right? You're part of an organization that's larger than you now, right? And you potentially may have a boss now, right? You know, a CEO or a CFO or someone like that. So finding out what are the exact parameters you expect of me, yeah. right? Am I expected to maintain certain hours? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because if it's not, if you don't do that due diligence ahead of time and you land there and you don't like it, as you, as you said, you know, and you were lucky because you didn't have that non-compete, right? 
if they had retained the rights to your business and you were out, you'd be out. And you'd basically be like, there's my business over there. I have nothing to do with it. And you'd have to be okay with it because, you know, it'd be very limited legal options available to you. So I think it's very, this is one of those things when you're checking off those boxes, you have to, a person has to look at that and find out what's the position I'm going to play. Am I good with it? You know, the best time to negotiate these things is when you're negotiating it, not after you sign the paper, you know, and completing the deal. As you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, my, I'm already brainstorming. I'm thinking about like, it would have been neat to have a care plan for myself right? Yeah. A care plan mm-hmm. that focused on, okay, these are the legal things that yeah, I yeah. really need to address. These are the personal emotional pieces. Cause you know, I went into this, I didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't know my place. I didn't know. I wasn't clear what the expectation was on my role. And I think they, they were clear about what they saw my role as, as a manager of this branch mm-hmm. and da, da, da. but um, it wasn't clear to me. I'd never done that before. And um, so I always felt like I wasn't, it was triggering my not good enough pieces. Mm-hmm. And I was at first I was trying to please them and I didn't know, I didn't understand. They spoke a different language from me. Um, right. And so, yeah, I mean, ultimately, obviously I um, just let that go, but they, they didn't value the gifts that I brought. I don't think they knew what to do with me, to be honest. <laughs> but a care plan would have been really nice, right? To look at what are my values? What do I need um, to succeed in this position emotionally and professionally and um, legally? So, yeah financially. Laura, I love all of this information. I know we have to wrap up, but I could yeah. go on and on. Totally. We could just for with, another two hours. Easily. I know just, there's just so many personally. other um, yeah. bits of information that would be helpful for people. But since I know we have to wrap up for people who are interested in getting in touch with you, because you offer a wide range of services, um, how can they find you? Thank you for asking. They can reach out. They can find me through my website, eldercarecounselor.com. Um, you can always email me. I'm, I love to um, just support all of us in the community. So if you're a business owner, you know, um, or you work with an aging population, or you have questions about my experience, feel free to reach out. Uh, uh, you can email me, laura at eldercarecounselor.com. And then, of course, I have my podcast, Life on Repeat. And it's a podcast for those caring for someone with dementia. Well, that about wraps it up for us today. Um, We thank you guys for listening and joining us today for this conversation. We hope it was as interesting for you as it was for us. As I I personally said, I could stay here for another two hours and talk to Laura. Um, So I'm very grateful for you being here, Laura. And as a reminder to listeners, yes, I'm talking to you who's sitting there thinking to yourself, I have a story, but I don't know if they want to hear it. We want to hear it. Come, go, tell me your story. I want to hear it. So go to our website, go to our Facebook page. Um, There is a a link to just a form, a quick survey form. We'll have you fill out. Tell us a little bit about what you're thinking and what happened and how how you overcame it, what lessons you think people could learn. Um, And we'll be in touch. Um, We possibly have you on the podcast. Other than that, again, thank you everyone for joining us and we will talk to you soon. Be well, my friends. 
Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.